Well, this week I read an article about a man named Gordon Hall. Gordon Hall spent the 1980s as kind of a larger-than-life man in Arizona, a Mormon, and a multimillionaire. He was a real estate developer. and I don't know if you remember Nautilus Clubs. He was the the entrepreneur that put forward these Nautilus Clubs. He lived a kind of a bigger-than-life life, always promising the bigger and, and biggest business dealings results. In one interview, he was, he was standing in front of his 55,000-square-foot mansion in Paradise Valley outside of Phoenix. I, I don't know if you remember, we called the 80s the, the decade of conspicuous consumption. Yeah, because had, everybody had money. The economy was booming, and we bought and bought and bought and bought. It looked more like a shopping mall than a house. 16 bedrooms, 25 baths, 6 dining rooms, 14 fireplaces, an outdoor swimming pool with a waterfall, and an ice skating rink, a 14-car garage with its own gas station, six kitchens, one with seven freezers and 11 ovens, a portico with 7,250 light bulbs, and of course, his own hair salon. But here's the best part. Here's the best part. In case anyone would would drive by and look at his mansion and wonder who lived there, he put a 45-foot sign on top of his house that said, Gordon Hall Mansion. (laughs) When asked about it, he simply said, "I, I want people to know where I live. By the way, this interview took place in 1986 when Gordon Hall was 32 years old. He was worth more than $100 million dollars. But he had goals. He said that by the time he was 38, he'd be a billionaire. And that by the time he died, which he was convinced wouldn't happen until he was 120 years old, he believed his good and just heavenly reward would be that Gordon Hall would become a god. I'm not making that up. Here's a quote from that interview. Hall says, We have always existed in spirits. In fact, we are down here to gain a body. As man is now, God once was. And as God is now, man can become. If you believe it, your genetic makeup is to be a God. And I believe it. That's why I believe I can do anything. I believe my genetic makeup is to be a God. Unquote. Hubris. Pride. Arrogance. Here's the problem. Hall's delusion is only one example of man's pride and arrogance to displace the one true God. There are other examples of the same pride and arrogance to displace God. Ours. Our own pride and arrogance. Mankind's natural position is one of pride and arrogance. We're going to see that on display in our passage this morning with the building of the Tower of Babel. But each one, every one of us, has the desire for vain glory in our hearts. Pride is that inward desire to be better than everyone else. Vain glory is that outward desire, that 45-foot sign that says we are better than them. And they know it. Just like Adam and Eve and Gordon Hall, we have that sinful bent to want to live independent of God. Sometimes just to forget he exists and to be our own gods. We need a word from God this morning, you and I, to help bring us heart-deep humility. 
humility, true contrition. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time. The context of our passage this morning, which is going to run from chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, verse 26, the flow may not be obvious as we go through that text, So it may help you to follow along on the sermon outline in your bulletin this morning. I'll read and then I'll explain three sections. The first is chapter 10, which is a genealogy of Noah and his three sons. The second is chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, which is the account of the Tower of Babel. And the third is chapter 11, verses 10 to 26, which is another genealogy, this this one of one of Noah's sons, Shem. It's kind of an Oreo cookie if that'll help you to eat it this morning. The two genealogies are the chocolatey wafers, and the story of the Tower of Babel is the creamy middle. And the purpose of the cookie is to give us understanding. The cash value of studying this passage this morning is to gain knowledge and understanding. Remember, Moses' original audience, when he handed the Septuagint, when he handed the, uh, the Pentateuch, excuse me, over to the people, uh, in, of Israel is the, is the Israelites at the end of their journey in the wilderness. They're about to cross into the Jordan River by God's command to battle against nations and to take their land because God promised it to Israel and there they will become a nation. So this idea of nations is prominent throughout this passage. So it's important for them to know something before they go into battle, before they commit to war. One, to know that there are nations Two, why there are nations. Three, who those nations are. Why are there these nations? And then four, the understanding, the promise that lay before them that they too would be God's chosen people, a chosen nation among all other nations. What's even more important for us to see in these chapters in Genesis is first, God's response to the ongoing rebellion and sin of mankind because it's just getting worse. And second, God's commitment to redeem a rebellious mankind through his promise of the seed of the woman, who's Jesus Christ. That promise is still in effect. You know, in these verses, Jesus isn't in the forefront, as he has been in other passages, through typology or prophecy or shadows. But Jesus is still the consistent background as God's ongoing promise and commitment to redeem sinners. If you want to follow along in your outline, you'll see this theme, where to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to put away our sinful pride and arrogance, and we are to serve the glory of God, to pursue the righteousness of Christ by faith. Let me begin by reading Genesis chapter 10, and then we'll talk about it. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madday, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripha, and Togomar. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. 
The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'amah, and Sabtekah. The sons of Ra'amah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it's said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtalim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asur, Arbakshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Kul, Gitter, and Mash. Arpachshad followed Shelah, and Shelah followed Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Hezarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Joab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they extended from Mesha to the direction of Sephar to the hill country to the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, this is the fourth section of Genesis signaled by the phrase, these are the generations of. And this is the second of two large genealogies that each contains 70 representatives. The genealogy back in chapter 5 took us from Adam to Noah. And it's very linear in structure. Adam fathered Seth, and then he died. Seth fathered Enosh, and then he died. Remember how we read that? Each one sounded the same. Skip all the way down. Good Lamech fathered Noah, and then he died. But Noah doesn't die in chapter 5. Instead, we get the account of the flood. Remember? The genealogy comes down to Noah, and he doesn't die yet. We get chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. Then finally, at the very last of verse of chapter 9, the formula is completed. It's right before where I started reading here. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 940 years, and he died. And so there, there, Moses, the writer, brings to conclusion the very linear genealogy from father to son, from Adam to Noah. But this genealogy in chapter 10 is very different. 
Theologians refer to this genealogy as the table of nations. This genealogy isn't linear at all, except, except in short segments. This genealogy is structured more like a family tree. There's one big Noah umbrella, and underneath that are three more umbrellas for Noah's sons, and then there are more little umbrellas under that, like a family tree. And all of these names are not the names of individual persons. Some are the names of persons or individuals, like Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Some are the names of peoples or nations, like Katim or Dadanim, or the Jebusites, Amorites, or Girgashites. And some of the names of places or locations like Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna. So the purpose of this genealogy is not so much to trace the line of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, although they're there, but to account for the nations that have been spared and spread abroad after the flood. That's why it's here. That's why we have this summary statement in verse 32, down at the end. These are the nations, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on all the earth after the flood. So, we have three sons of Noah in this order, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. First, Japheth, in verses 1 to 5. Japheth was the eldest son, but also, these peoples would have been the furthest away from Israel. They were scattered way out on the far horizon. They would have been the least concern to Israel, politically or militarily. Having been spread to the, to the north and to the west, you might think of them as the people who would eventually move into Europe and Asia. And there were seven sons and 14 grandsons of Japheth. And we don't get any other information about them, mostly because, well, they're from away. You just don't get respect if you're from away. And so there just wasn't a real need to be worried about them at that point in time. We have the sons of Ham in verses 6 to 20. The sons of Ham, Noah's youngest son, they settled in Egypt, Mesopotamia, parts of Arabia and North Africa. These were Israel's near neighbors. These are the peoples who caused Israel problems for centuries. Ham's descendants are a list of the most infamous of Israel's adversaries, Egypt. Assyria, Babel, or think Babylonia, or Babylon, Nineveh, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Remember the Jebusites who controlled Jerusalem, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Philistines. Ham had four sons, seven sons and grandsons from Cush, seven descendants from Egypt. They're going to be listed later. Eleven descendants of Canaan, plus one man who singled out for special mention, for a total of 30 descendants in the line of Ham. Now this one man singled out for special mention is found in verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. Nimrod was an impressive guy. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. Moses writes he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And so it became you know, one of those saying, if you were a good hunter, somebody might say, gosh, you're like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And commentators aren't sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, on the face of it, that doesn't sound bad. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wow. He's certainly a great leader. Civilization developed under him. Babel 
was the first of many great cities in his kingdom. But Nimrod's name means we shall rebel. We shall rebel. Which would make him a bad guy. And as we consider the account of mankind's behavior in Babel in chapter 11, that would seem a bad thing as well. I think Nimrod is the Gordon Hall of his day, consumed with making a name for himself. Then we see mentioned Israel's enemies, the Canaanites and the Philistines, who come from among the people's languages, lands, and nations of Ham. So far we have Japheth, who's far off, Ham, who's close by, and then finally... Shem, verses 21 to 31. There are, there are five sons, then four mentioned through the line of Aram, and then two through the line of Arpachshad, then Eber splits into two, Joktan and Peleg. And the people of the Shemites spread out to northern Mesopotamia, Syria, and parts of Arabia. Moses has saved this chosen line for last. Why? Because he wants to end on a hopeful note. The Bible's focus remains on the seed of the woman, even if it's it's muted here. You'll notice that in verse 21 that Moses wants to make sure that we, we see Eber is descended from Shem before we even get to Eber in verse 25. Because the word Hebrew comes from Eber's name. Eber is the father of the Hebrews. And Peleg in verse 26, not Joktan, carries forward the line of Shem. And it was during Peleg's days that the peoples of the earth were dispersed. Did you see that? What Nimrod put in motion in the city of Babel leads to God's response to scatter the nations at the Tower of Babel during Peleg's days. Notice that Peleg's line is not listed here. It says Peleg, but it doesn't go any further. It'll be listed later. See, there's a split in the family tree here. Moses will explore Peleg's line later. He traces Joktan's line down. He traces Joktan's line down to the Tower of Babel. It's not a good thing. But if you add up all the descendants, Shem with 26, 14 for Japheth, and 30 for Ham, you have a total of 70. And so the table of nations accounts for 70 nations upon the earth. What's the significance of 70? Well, both seven and ten signify or symbolize or represent totality, completion in the Hebrew language. So even though the table of nations does not include every name of every nation and every generation on the earth, these 70 peoples, clans, and tribes represent the totality of all the nations on the face of the earth. That'll be important to remember later. So here's all of this genealogy, which we love to read. They're so fun. This is probably where you go for your devotional time. You flip over that little best-selling devotional book from Genesis chapter 10, the genealogy, the table of the nations. What, what, What are we learning? What do we know? What do we understand that we can apply here? A couple of things before we move on. Because there, there are kind of good things and bad things in this genealogy. There are kind of right things and wrong things in these groups of people. On the one hand, the manyness of the peoples is a sign of blessing. God commanded Noah and his sons in chapter 9, verse 1, be fruitful and multiply. They've done that. And God has blessed them. They are many. That's good. But it's also punishment. 
and restraint. That many are divided because of their sin. There are many, but they're divided because of their sin. The history of the world since the flood is a history of conflict between peoples, clans, tribes, and nations, isn't it? We saw it with Cain and Abel. We saw it in wicked Lamech. We saw it in the violence of the pre-flood generation. And after the flood, God lays out, uh, says out loud, we don't, want, we don't want to hear him say, and that is that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It continues. Every nation today came from the same source. This is important, isn't it? Isn't that what this is telling us? Every nation today came from the same source. Noah and his three sons. Even so, we know that there will be wars and rumors of wars until Jesus returns to bring peace on earth. We know that. Something to know. Here's something else to know and to understand. We clearly see that all the peoples of the earth are united in a common ancestor. All the people are united, all the persons today are united by a common origin. And we should use that knowledge. We should use that understanding as a way of moving into greater harmony with one another instead of breaking people down into smaller and smaller groups defined by greater and greater differences. All the people spread across all the earth all came from one of three brothers who came from one man. And yet every nation deals with the sin of racism within. You know, there is no biologically essential difference between any of us in this room or between any human. There is no essential biological difference between, let's say, Europeans, Africans, or Asians. We've made up racial differences based on mere physical characteristics like color, tone of skin, or texture of hair. When the Bible clearly shows that God made only one race. The race of man, made in the image of God, both male and female. There is no biblical justification, and there is no biological justification for racism. None. And God won't countenance it. Instead, all of the nations that we see here, we're all to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we're to love and care for one another as God has loved and cared for us. That's the path. So the table of nations looks like a series of concentric circles, if you will, like a target moving towards the center where Shem's line is, where Jesus is the bullseye, it's pointing us in the right direction. But what comes next is a story of how and why the nations came to be scattered. Why we came to be separated and with many languages. It's the story of the Tower of Babel in chapter, one beginning, or chapter 11 beginning in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. 
Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they will have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now this account begins with the people of the earth all being together and having one language. So chronologically, the Tower of Babel comes before the accounting of the Table of Nations. Moses is now explaining how it is that the nations came to be scattered and have their own languages. And notice that they're moving from the east. This this phrase, it's a little muddled in translation here. They're moving from a place, a position in the east, east of Eden, and going even further east. They're moving towards Mesopotamia. In other words, they're moving in the direction that takes them further and further from God. Just as Cain did, just as the other generations did, as they continue to move east, they're moving further from God, east of Eden. And when they found a level plain, it looked nice, they decided to stop and settle there. Now what's the problem with that? Remember in chapter 9, verse 1, God commanded Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the plan and purpose of God. And their decision for all of man to put down roots and stay in one place, stands in direct opposition to God's plan for them to fill the whole planet with his glory. And like Gordon Hall, they're not shy about their motives in verse 4, are they? Come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us build ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. I mean, look at their pride and hubris on display. Let us build a city for ourselves rather than a city for God. Let us build a tower for ourselves to reach into the heavens rather than to appeal to God for entrance into his heaven. Let us make our name great rather than making God's name great. And let us put a 45-foot sign at the top of our tower that says, Man lives here! And man will not be dispersed from this place. few details and their implications. The Israelites in the promised land would build everything with stone. The plain of Shinar had no stone, but it had clay and it had tar pits to make bricks with. And so while many commentators will point to the, oh, look at the technological advance that's happening here in society, and that's true, the Israelites would have read this and seen it as inferior, something to laugh at. <laughs> they built with bricks. We build with stones. They would also have seen a connection between making bricks and slavery, wouldn't they? Israel was enslaved to Egypt and forced to make bricks. Here the people are willingly enslaved to their rebellion against God and willingly engaging themselves in slave labor to burn bricks to build their own mountain. See, the tower is called a ziggurat. 
in Mesopotamian terms. It looks like a square pyramid, the stair steps that go up each side. You know, so you can walk up the stairs to heaven. Symbolically, it's a mountain. It's a mountain that they're building. Eden was in a high place, a mountain. Noah's Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, a mountain, a high place. They're building their own high place on which to worship themselves, a mountain alternative to God's mountain. The tower to the heavens expresses their desire to challenge God. In defiance of God, they wanted autonomy, just like Adam and Eve. With a name for themselves in a fortified city, they believed they could resist being dispersed by anyone, including God. And each of those desires of their prideful hearts go precisely against the plan of God. For mankind to worship God, to make much of his name, and to do so across the face of the earth. We had hoped to look at Babel and see one people communicating in their one language and building a city to the glory of God. That's what we wanted to see. Instead, we see yet again concrete evidence that the thoughts of man's hearts was only evil continually, just as it was before the flood. It is now after the flood. And so God comes down to respond. Man's rebellion is <clears throat> excuse me, no laughing matter, but one commentator likened Moses' writing of this passage to the writing style of Dr. Seuss. Best I can tell, he's right. The sarcasm in the passage is intended. He wants the foolishness of the sinfulness of man to be seen. Man has spent all their time and energy to build a, a high-tech, new bricks and bitumen mortar, tower to the heavens, but God can't see it. In fact, God, who sees everything, has to come down from heaven. Has to, has to get down on his hands and knees, so to speak, all the way to earth before he can see man's puny, pathetic, microscopic, tiny toy tower. We're supposed to read it that way. How foolish these people that <laughs> they think they can exalt themselves before God. In Hebrew, the text is filled with word plays and rhyming words, words that sound like, if it was written in English and written by Dr. Seuss, we might hear things that sound a little bit like this. Man bricks and he bricks and he brick, 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 bricks. But everything man bricks, God unbricks. Or... One minute man was building and building in clear communication. Then man was babbling and babbling in confused, confounding confusion. Or, yes, they made a name for themselves, but their name was Mud. We would take it like that, don't you? Now, now don't think for a minute that God is not or too dignified to make fun of your puny attempts to be your own God. And your pathetic delusions of autonomy. In Psalm 2, the God who sits in the heavens, he laughs. He laughs at the kings of the earth who set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. And he ridicules our claims of independence from his sovereign rule. 
Because of mankind's arrogance, God deprives them of their ability to communicate with one another, to make plans and build things. He confuses their language. Why? Was God afraid that they might actually connect heaven to earth with their tower? Was God afraid that they might actually achieve God-like status and be on an equal footing with him? No. Or I might say, no, 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 no. God intervened to mitigate the depth of the corruption man might bring on the earth if left unchecked. God is keeping man from destroying himself. So that man comes up short of the violence that man corrupted the earth with before the flood. No longer wishing to destroy man, God confuses man's language. The, the one language they were, had that they were supposed to use to unite themselves in the worship of God. And instead used it to rebel against him. And he disperses them across the landscape. God knows that there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to destruction. You see, God's response at the Tower of Babel is another massive display of the grace of God to sinners in the form of a punishment and a restriction. I suppose there are a lot of things we could apply from knowledge and understanding here, but I think the clear opportunity is to just kind of take a minute and look at our own pride and our own arrogance. It's just rooted here in Genesis from from Adam and Eve all the way now to the Tower of Babel. You know, believers and unbelievers need to know and understand that it is in God that we live and move and have our being. That's what Paul says in Acts chapter 17. That should humble you. It should humble us. It's in God that we live and move and have our being. You don't want to be apart from or independent of the one who alone gives and sustains life. We need to know and understand that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter chapter 5. You see, he is the Lord, and we're to be his servants. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, Peter writes. You know what that means, don't you? It means that there will be no proud people in heaven. Everyone in, 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 in heaven will be humble before Christ. Apply that to your own heart now. Only people who have humbled themselves before their creator will be in the new heavens and the new earth. At the Tower of Babel, the people declared their rejection of God and he confused their language. But through the prophet Zephaniah, God promised a reversal of this judgment to come. That's pretty encouraging. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. <clears throat> if God's call to salvation in the past has sounded like Babel to you, but it's sounding a little bit clearer this morning, you should call upon Jesus. You should call upon Jesus with clear speech. Because this is what he promises to those who call upon Jesus. The next line in the prophet Zephaniah, On that day you shall not be put to shame, 
because of the deeds by which you've rebelled against me. It's a promise of salvation. And that's exactly what we all need. Don't ignore your sin. Own your sin. And humble yourself. Salvation begins and is sustained in humility. Because salvation is accomplished by Christ. Who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You know what's funny about this whole Shem thing? Do you know what the word Shem means? Name. Man wants to make a name for themselves. God says, I already have a name. Man says, I want to make a Shem for myself. God says, I already have a Shem. It's through my Shem that you'll be saved. And here he is. Ultimately, right? God gives Jesus the Shem that's above every Shem so that at the Shem of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just like sinners in Babel, we can't exalt ourselves to God. We think we are, but we're not. But when we humble ourselves and place our faith in Jesus Christ, God will exalt us at the proper time. Now is not the proper time. Now is the time to serve him and worship him. And he will exalt his people at Christ's return. So we should know and we should understand and we should live those truths. Our last section is another genealogy. It's the generations of Shem, and it begins in verse 10 of chapter 11. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he followed Shelah, and Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. So you were picking up on the, on the genealogy of Peleg that was left off before. Verse 17, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after his fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived another, after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. We notice just a few things in this genealogy. Shem, who has already been mentioned several times, Gets his own generations of, right? 
This is a new tall dot. This is, this is the fifth of ten sections of the book of Genesis, all devoted to Shen and his descendants. Although it's different from the genealogy in chapter 10. We see the people's lives are getting shorter, presumably due to the effects of sin after the flood. And we see a particularly prominent name in verse 26. Did you catch it? Abram. Abram. So why is this genealogy here? Why is this genealogy here? I think we have to tackle that in in tandem. Remember the two chocolatey parts of the Oreo cookie? We need to take that in tandem. Remember, this chocolatey part of the Oreo cookie, chapter 10, shows us that all the diverse and dispersed peoples of the earth are all part of God's singular plan. God was never a God of one nation. God has always been a God of all the nations. Our God, Yahweh, is the Lord and God of all nations. His plan is to gather from a diverse and dispersed people, scattered people, to gather worshipers to himself and for his glory. It's always been an all-nation plan. This is what Paul preached in Acts chapter 17, that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. See, God is not confined to one place or one people or one language. He is God of all. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, that's the Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the people's According to the numbers of the sons of Israel. Well, that's an interesting phrase. That's an interesting connection. What does that mean? Well, how many sons of Israel are there who went into Egypt? Genesis chapter 46 tells us that there were 70 sons of Jacob that went down into Egypt. The 70 sons represent the totality of one nation, Israel. Just as the 70 nations in chapter 10 represent the totality of all the nations on the earth. And the connection between the two is that one of these groups is going to have a mission towards the other of these groups. Isn't it interesting that in the table of the nations of all the earth, the one nation you would expect to see listed, the one nation that holds our attention through the entire Old Testament is never mentioned? What nation is not mentioned? Israel. Why? Why is Israel not mentioned in the table of nations? Because it's being foreshadowed here. Follow the flow. The table of nations is the fact of a scattered people dispersed from God, dispersed from one another. The Tower of Babel is the reason for the scattered people. Their sin and rejection of God. And now, the generations of Shem is God's plan to rescue the nations from their sin. See, chapter 10 sets up chapter 11. 
and chapter 12 and those chapters beyond by leading us to what? By leading us to Abraham, who will be the father of many nations by faith. And by faith in God's promise to Abraham and Abraham's coming seed, all the nations will be blessed. Do you see the mission? Do you see the mission? What is God going to do with all the nations of the earth? He's going to bless them through the one nation, Israel. There was a world of peoples before Abraham. And it is through Abraham that God is going to save all these people. That is through God's promise to Abraham of the seed of the woman, the gospel. Remember in Luke chapter 10, how many disciples did Jesus send out to cast out demons, heal the sick, and preach the gospel? Seventy. Jesus sent out 70 disciples to connect his mission to the Father's mission, not just to save the lost tribes of Israel, but to reclaim, ultimately, all of the 70 nations of the earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation. He didn't just go, hmm, 70. How many guys we got here? 70. No, he's making the connection. My, my mission, my gospel mission is the same as the Father's mission, to rescue the world. So how do we apply that? We apply that by knowing and understanding that God has a big plan. It's a big plan and a purpose for you, his church. Don't let your understanding be small. Don't let your vision be small. This text reveals to us a God who could not be bigger with a plan for the world that could not be bigger. How much of the world does God want to redeem? All of it. That does not mean that every single person will be saved. It does mean that he will save people from every tribe and tongue and nation, even ours. In Isaiah chapter 49, God says, you know, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too small of a mission. I will make you a light for the nations, he says, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, God will, in a sense, reverse the curse at Babel. He says through the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 9 and 11, I'll read them again, for at a time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord, will serve him in unity instead of the division. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds of which you uh, have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my mountain. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, by the power of the Spirit, the gospel is proclaimed to the nations, isn't it? The nations are present in Jerusalem. And the Spirit brings tongues of fire that allow them to speak in languages they had not learned so that all the nations would understand right there in that one place, bringing salvation to all who would believe. And as we look forward to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, God shows us God shows us the end result. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All peoples. Our God is the God of all peoples. And he has authorized us as his ambassadors, and he has provisioned us as his missionaries to gather worshipers to him by proclaiming the gospel and calling sinners to saving faith. Dear sinner, come be saved. Believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. Have life forever. That is a promise that God has made and God will keep. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us as individuals. Help us to see. Be pleased to show us your greatness and the greatness of your love for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would call upon Christ. Father, use us as your church that we might glorify you in the ways that you've called us to do. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.